0: Welcome to Fuzzcast, a podcast which talks to some of the musicians from the centre of the punk new wave and ska explosion, which in the late 70s and early 80s changed the face of popular music forever and for better. I'm Paul Holloway, and welcome to episode one, The Sound of the Suburbs, with JC Carroll from the Members. Hi JC.
1: Good morning, Paul.
0: Thank you for inviting me down to your, your man cave. Now, JC was the guitarist and one half of the principal songwriting partnership in the band The Members with frontman Nicky Tesco. JC and Nicky both originally from the Surrey commuter town of Camberley, uh, but the band made its name in and around West London. They're best known for their anthem, The Sound of the Suburbs, uh, but the members were a key part of the London punk explosion. They released three studio albums of the band's first spell together between 1976 and 1983. Uh, They've toured America, Australia, and they've had success there as well. Uh, Played gigs with loads of bands from the the punk uh, movement, including The Police and The Clash, and like both those bands they incorporated reggae into their sound. After a gap of nearly 25 years, the members reformed in 2007, and JC has been ever-present and the driving force behind the band since they reformed. Uh, Still gigging and releasing new material, and a great hits album is that kind of you summed up jc
1: well yeah that's right that's what we've been doing since um since 1977 yeah that's right 43 years of punk rock
0: fantastic it's great isn't it yeah. <laughs> and still going strong um you're about to release your uh, autobiography
1: i've been working on my book for about two years now and every time i get near finishing it i get another brilliant project that comes up and uh, so it's 75% done you've got a copy on your laptop you can tell me whether it's any good or not nobody else has seen it
0: well thank you very much uh, i really enjoyed reading it uh, which has given me so many questions to ask you about uh, so thanks for bringing us into your your little home studio how could we describe this to people it's it is it's it's a thing that i think every middle-aged man dreams of is having a little corner of his home which is full of guitars, uh, computers, posters. Uh, We've got Elvis on the wall. We've got Jimi Hendrix, loads of old um, uh, sort of members' stuff knocking around as well. A few sort of copies of vinyl and CDs and all sorts of stuff. I bet you have a great time up here,
1: don't you? Well, this is where I do all my work. I was very lucky. I moved back to Surrey in 2008 and believe it or not, this is where my work started again in earnest. Um, A friend that helped me move down here, my friend Stephen, said to me, well, you should really live here. You know, you are the sound of the suburbs. And I moved into this house and there was a room here that I could set all my music up in. And so this is where I make my records, where I score my films. A lot of work gets done here You know, you just need a room, a computer and a microphone And that's you, good to go
0: And that's what we're doing today We're in a room <laughs> with a microphone It's as easy as that Right, I want to ask you about Sound of the Suburbs to start with um, It is It is an anthem And I think that, uh, as talking as a, as a fan of the music that came out of the punk explosion I don't really think there's that many records Maybe London Calling or Anarchy in the UK I think it is the anthem of the, uh, the punk movement. However, there was more to the members than that. So how do you feel about the song all these years later?
1: Well, the sound of the suburbs is a really important song for us and the members. And for me as a songwriter, because it defines the members, it kind of defines me as well. And the reason I had the original idea to write it was we were playing in pubs around London and suddenly all these 15 and 16 year old boys and girls started appearing at the gigs. They were obviously underage, they were in pubs and they weren't from central London, they were from the, the outskirts, the suburbs. And at the time in 1978, people believed that punk was the property of a metropolitan elite of a groovy group of art school students and people that went to sent that hung around in central London, you know, and when these people started coming to our shows, I suddenly realized that they were something really special because they were people that were looking for something and they were a generation that needed to be defined. And also it, It was at the time where punk was exploding as a real message and a a zeitgeist, the thing that people wanted to identify with. So it's a really, really important record. People love it when we play it. And the best thing about performing it live is it can give people their teenage years back and they feel 16, 15, 17 again for three minutes whilst we sing it. So it's a win win it's a brilliant uh, it's a brilliant calling card for us
0: it's a great record um it's your record really because you wrote the majority of the song and then you took it to the rest of the band uh and then uh, nicky was like cuz you and nicky were kind of like the McCartney and Lennon of the of the band if you like you were the, the the main songwriters but you took the song to him and then he added a little bit is that how it worked
1: Well Nicky was brilliant you know he he hired me originally because he possibly because I looked more like a punk rocker than the rest of the guys but he knew that I had some songs and um so I wasn't that good on the guitar but he knew that I had some songs and uh, I wrote it literally, and it came, it appeared, you know, in my head, and and I wrote it down on a piece of paper, and I wrote the chords, and I brought it to the band, and the guitarist at the time didn't like it. He was a great guitarist, Gary, the original guitarist, but he, didn't, he saw me as a bit of a threat. So it was about four or five months before we actually played it. Um, it was he wouldn't play it. Um, it was a bit complicated. It's quite a complicated song, so. The first time we played it was uh, in a club called The Marquis. It was a very, very famous, possibly the most famous music club ever in England. And um, it, was, it was like in a movie, you know, we played it and everybody went mad and I knew in my bones that it would be a hit. It sounds very big-headed to say that, but people reacted to the song like they knew it. Like it was... It was kind of their anthem as soon as they heard it, and that very rarely happens with songs. It's
0: got a great energy, hasn't it? Uh, which bit did Nicky add to the uh, the song?
1: Nicky wrote the th- um, the third verse. Is that the bit about youth club kids want to be free? No, no, a bit? no, no. Which it's, bit did um, he write? it's um young boys sitting on the benches shouting it. The young Saturday manly the family yeah, yeah. shoppers. That's the last verse. Okay, and that's not on both. It's not on the um seven inch version it's only on the slightly longer version the youth club group want to be free somebody asked me about that the other day you know what does that mean and i'll explain it to you because it's quite an interesting story the words are the youth club group wish to want to be free now they want anarchy and people say you know what's that about well i what i meant when i wrote that is they used to want to be the band free Ah, yeah,
0: right. Okay, it makes sense. Yeah. Singing
1: all night right now, so it means that we all had slightly long hair and we were playing all night right now. But then we obviously, because now we want the Sex Pistols and yeah, yeah. So it was, it was about, yeah. I mean, it was, it was about people from the suburbs getting into punk rock. And um, in a funny way, it's, punk rock is kind of a really suburban thing. I don't know. It seems to be. It's. Uh, it's a DIY kind of thing.
0: That's the whole punk ethos, isn't it? Learn three chords, away you go, form a band, have a go.
1: Well, I really love the idea that it wasn't about the metropolitan elite and it wasn't just about a few trendy guys in Manchester and London. And I think it, as soon as it belonged to everybody, all these people from these really rubbish commuter towns, then it suddenly, I think it took on a new mo- meaning for me and... Uh, yeah, I mean, it was it was just a great time, you know. And um,
0: and you didn't play that song for for years in between the members
1: reforming. No, we never. I never played it. I, I I. What happened is that the band split up, and Chris and I had a had a kind of Balkan tango band where I played the accordion. We never played "Sound of the Suburbs," and then uh, I played with various people. I played with Glenn Matlock and his band for a while. And we never played it. And then I had a folk group and we just never played Sound of the Suburbs. And, and then uh, it's only when we put the band back together again, I suddenly realised that it meant so much to everyone. In fact, the last period of the members in 83, when we toured in America, we never played Sound of the Suburbs. Mm. We, di- we didn't play it. It wasn't in the set list.
0: I suppose the sound of the band by the third album had changed an awful lot. It was less punk. It was more sort of...
1: Yeah, it was very 80s. It yeah. became a very 80s band. Um, and so, you know, in America, our big hit was... Um, Working Girl. Working Girl. but in And in Australia, it was radio. Mm-hmm. That gets far more place in sound of the suburbs in Australia. So... We, we, the, the band is a funny band because it started off as a punk band, but in other countries we're known as a sort of '80s band. So there we go.
0: Right. Okay.
1: Well, I thought
0: I'd like to do. I'm going to introduce the band. <laughs> yeah. Oh yes. Yeah. Let's talk. So let's just just for anybody who's, who's not uh, really familiar with the uh, the, the members, because we're going to talk about these people. Let's uh, just get a little bit of uh, background on them. So the classic lineup we'll start with. I know more people have been involved with the members over the years. But there's you um, as uh, sort of backing vocals, guitar, writing the songs, and your songwriting partner for most of the songs. Uh, although Chris, a bass player, he wrote some of the material as well, didn't he? But it was it was Nicky Tesco. It was his band.
1: Was, the members was Nicky Tesco's band. He formed it in Camberley in 1976 uh, with a guitarist called Gary Baker. Um, Gary was a great guitarist and quite a good songwriter. And uh, I joined in 1977 it's quite an
0: interesting uh, story about how you met though because although you were both from the same town um you met him on a, on a train journey you, you you'd finished school uh, and you were working in banking in london and you met this fella on a, a train journey
1: um, that's right yes. tell the
0: story go on what happened when you
1: i was just traveling down from london i used to commute to london um i with my suit on i, w- I left school on a friday and i started work on a monday in a bank and uh one day I was travelling on a train journey, and a friend of a friend introduced me to this guy, and he was um, he was coming back from um, his uh, term at Liverpool University, and it was Nick Tesco and he was a very charismatic guy, and he was um, obviously a very worldly wise guy, and you know I was immediately impressed by him, but that's the first time I met him. I never really knew him. When I lived out in Camberley, he, he had just sort of appeared on the scene and uh, immediately made an impression. He was he was a brilliant organiser, uh, a very, very... He blagged things. He was just a great publicist. He was everything you wanted to start a band up. He was fantastic.
0: As a front man, I was, I'm looking at some old footage. I've never seen Nicky play live. I've yeah. seen the members since you've yeah, yeah, yeah. reformed, but I, I've never seen him live. Uh, but he has this sort of... Uh, his persona, because um, the members didn't take themselves that seriously, but he still has a sort of ins- there's an intensity around him, isn't there? Um, he, he's got this sort of energy.
1: Nick Nick had a fantastic energy. I mean, and also he was a really funny and amusing front man. So he he just he was he was a brilliant per- person to have in the band. He was very very charismatic. When I wrote certain Bits and pieces songs and when I wrote with him, he, he really spoke the voice of the pe- people in my songs because I kind of wrote songs about and he took on the persona really amazingly well about the guy in the bed sit in solitary confinement. So he was an actor, an actor, a fantastic actor. He was this bundle of energy. he looked a bit like a very a punk rock version of Eric Burden from the Animals. Mm. Girls loved him, adored him and um, and guys wanted to be his mate and he was just the the perfect person to have as your front man in a punk rock group. And the way that the two
0: of you worked in terms of as as being the the principal songwriters for the band. Would it, I get the impression from reading your book that you'd be taking the ideas to him. He would be a song that's sort of seventy-five percent done or whatever, and then he'd have that sort of oh, this is where we're going to take it. Is that how it worked?
1: Yeah, I mean, he just put his seal on it. I mean, he in solitary confinement, he I, I wrote a song and he just said, look, and he did this soliloquy in the middle. He made this little story up about this guy, and it suddenly it took on his character. He was fantastic, you know.
0: Oh, that's a bit about the girl across the corridor. I yeah, yeah, think yeah, she no, fancies me and all that oh, sort of it's stuff. it's That's quite tongue-in-cheek, isn't it? Yeah.
1: Well, it was very tongue-in-cheek for punk rock. I mean, that's the thing about the members. We weren't really pretending to be that angry. We were kind of taking the piss out of ourselves in a kind of sophisticated way. So there was something, I don't know, there was something that was different from standard punk rock angry group. About it We did that as well Especially on The Fear on the Streets The first recording But There was something Really special about him And the way he He brought the persona Of the band across And also this Suburban Oik This guy that was like Just the normal guy From Camberley was just brilliant
0: but He had something to say Didn't he There was a real energy
1: yeah. yeah No he's brilliant He's fantastic
0: So Also in the band We've got your mate Chris Chris Payne Still playing with the band, you know, since you've reformed, apart from yourself, he's been the the, the key player that's in there. And you and Chris seem to have a relationship. I've only met him once. Oh, right. Yeah, so I don't, don't know the guy, but just from some of the things I've seen watching the two of you play the two of you seem to be a little double act within the band you'd always share the same edge, edge of the stage when you were playing together in the olden days and he kept on your floor when you were starting out the band and everything
1: yeah i mean chris is um, chris um, chris was 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 a workmate of the original guitarist gary baker they both worked at british airways the members have a sort of weird relationship with heathrow airport lots of people work there and when he joined the band it suddenly hit. I mean, he joined just after me in 1977 and um, he did some, he did some of the singing on some of the early stuff. He's his, his singing on the, the flying again record. And when we did recorded offshore banking business, it's me and Chris sing the lead vocal in unison. And Nick does the rapping. Yeah. So Chris is actually quite a good singer. He has this kind of weird reggae jazz style, which is, quite unusual I mean when we started playing there was no other punk groups playing reggae but we had this reggae vibe from very very early on and he kind of pioneered it so his bass playing is kind of before Jar Wobble and all those people he was the first kind of punk guy really to bring this crazy reggae sound into music so he's I mean he's a very special guy because I've been working with him longer than anybody else and um, he's Yeah, he's great. I mean, he's the rock that I built the church and I I guess since we've been started, yeah, no, he's been brilliant. You know, but he's
0: he's got that sort of yeah, that sort of bass player, Steady Eddie. He's a big tall fella for starters, isn't he? But he just it's that sort. It looks to me like he's almost unflappable.
1: He is. Yeah, I mean, he's had his moments. Um, He's. I mean, he's just great to to work with. And and there's not many relationships that last forty two three years in music and uh i was in a band with him after the members broke up we had a this kind of balkan tango band where we played i played accordion and we did all this kind of completely different stuff uh so it was like a fun boy three kind of phase so he's the person i played most with and uh so he's incredibly important part of the members he's had a few little breaks for health reasons and um but he's just, uh, yeah, I mean, he's a great guy. And he does write some great songs. Some of the, the songs like Soho, Go Go, and some of the songs on the second album he wrote with Nick, Nick Tesco. So he's, he's, he, and it was a revelation when we put the band back together again because I could do the front man talking to the audience a bit. But some of the songs, like Working Girl, Chris can sing really, really well. And, uh, so, it's it's he's a utility person. He yeah. Anto's so two of band. you share that. He's like a little. punk version of Sting. He's a kind of a, like a slightly crazy version of Sting, you know, which is kind of nice to have that in your band.
0: Also, in your classic lineup, you had Nigel, Nigel Bennett. Now he came in and, and replaced Gary. Um, and I think uh, when um, Gary Baker left the band because I think it was when you were about to sort of go off it, get in a van and start touring around, and he didn't want to give up his job, so you um did a bit of uh, uh, sort of um uh... we had uh, <laughs>
1: auditions you had
0: auditions that's the word I was that,
1: that sounds very very posh and very very um put an advert in uh, the in in those days if you were really serious about the band you would and wanted a new member you would put an advert in the melody maker which i we did and it went like this you know band with record company and you know, with everything needs guitarists, so you get about five hundred people writing in wanting to join the band. and the very first person that came along to the audition was Nigel, and uh, he didn't really know anything about punk rock and or reggae, but he said he liked the guitarist out of the Alex Harvey band, and so we thought that's good enough, and he played well. And so he was in, you know, and Nigel joined the band in 1978. He was on the cover of the Stiff Solitary Confinement record, but not on Didn't the record. Play on it, right.
0: Okay, so he was so, just coming in at that
1: time. Yeah, so he came in at that time and he kind of arrived at the right time because just before we went to Berlin for our first concerts and before we signed our first record deal.
0: There's one other member of the classic lineup of uh, the members, uh, and that's Adrian Lillywhite on drums. Uh, his brother Steve uh, has become a music legend producing U2. Um, who hasn't he produced, actually? Uh, the list just goes on and on and on forever.
1: Well, um, I think Steve Lillywhite is from near here. I mean, Steve Lillywhite is very much the sound of the suburbs. He comes from a small village called Englefield Green, which is not far from where we are sitting in West Myfleet. And so uh, he, him and his brother were really great musicians. I, I was aware of Steve Willey White from the age of about 17 because he had a band in the local Battle of the Bands called Archangel. And so he is a Surrey music legend. He went up to London when he was um, about 16 or 17 and got a job as a tape operator in this recording studio. But we should really talk about Adrian first before we go on to Steve because Adrian was a fantastic drummer. He was the third drummer Nick had recruited. Nick had two unsuitable drummers before Adrian and he got Adrian off a local prog group called Zed Benz and Adrian is just an amazing, very busy, on the Tom Toms kind of energetic drum sound. So it was very useful having a brother who was a recording engineer because when we got to do some demos, Steve would find us time in a studio and we would record and Steve would help us a little bit to get our sound together and we, in turn, yeah. would help him.
0: Yeah. Did you ask him? He, he did he
1: produce uh, was it Soldier Confinement or uh, Sound of the Suburbs? He produced Sound of the Suburbs, but at the time he was just starting off, so he hadn't had many production credits. He had um, co produced Eddie and the Hot Rods Do Anything You Want to Do with the original Eddie and the Hot Rods manager Ed Hollis, and he had done a fantastic record with uh very early Ultravox. Uh, they were called Tiger Lily and then it became Ultravox. So he was a tape operator and he was just finding his feet as a as a record producer. So when we got signed to Virgin, there was a bit of movement. We said, look, we want this Steve Lillywhite to produce the record. And they said yes. And that was, he just knew what we were about. He knew what the, the sound of the band was about. Sound of the Suburbs was done before the album. He recorded us, pretty much like we were live he put me on one side of the stereo Nigel on the other side then it was two tricks he put on the record both tricks that were already on do anything you want to do which was a hand clap that went yeah also the addition of acoustic guitar in the chorus shang dang gang and then he and that was that was his tricks I mean the rest of the record is pretty much like we played it live. But we were so well rehearsed and so hot and on it.
0: It's got great structure, the record, though, hasn't it? The way well, It's quite it complicated.
1: It's, quite, it's a very complicated record because it has a bugle call at the very beginning, which is the introduction. Then it has a verse and then this long eight bars of guitar before the first chorus, which shouldn't work but does. Then it has another verse and the chorus, then a middle eight, then this kind of dreamy kind of middle instrumental bit, and it's it's before it explodes and goes yeah, up another notch. Yeah, 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 it's 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 a strange and it's got tempo changes, it's got all sorts of things. But Steve really was part of the sound of the suburbs because he was part of the gang from out in Surrey here, and so he was very much. Part of our sound and part of the band really with his brother, you know they were we, we had two sets of bro- my brother came and helped me at one stage as well, but it was yeah, it was like a family thing you know yeah
0: okay that brings us on talking about your your brother uh, Paddy, and how he helped you with the band um, so when you left school, you left school. Uh, and i think you had a weekend where uh, you went down and uh, and did a bit of uh, pottering around uh in the uh, down in devon or cornwall or somewhere That's right, did you yeah. and then this next monday you were starting straight away working in the city
1: yeah we did muck about in this gap year the thing i had a gap weekend I left school on friday and started work on monday and i went straight into work in the bank like most respectable grammar school boys did you know if you were you had a couple of a levels you got a job in a bank and i went off to the city in the commuter train up from surrey and uh, that was my world mapped out for me until i bumped into nick tesco
0: while you were doing that you then got a flat in london and you've lived in a few different uh, places around yeah. london while you were doing that yeah. in fact the interesting thing is i mean solitary confinements about you moving to london and then finding yourself in this big city and being all alone isn't it so yeah. a lot of that's you know, that's sort of real life story but part of what you what you say in the the book so far is that uh, paddy had, had a row with your mum that's
1: right my brother had my brother paddy was the first into most scenes he grew grew his hair long first when we were kind of into heavy metal and then one day he cut his hair off and he stuck a safety pin through his um ear and my mum chucked him out and he went to the phone box and he phoned me up and said M- the mother's phoned me out throw me out can i come and live with you and i said yeah i've got a bed sit you can sleep on the floor and um you get yourself sorted out so he came up to town and um it was really great to have him in town because I just started going to these punk clubs on my own to the to the Roxy, and so it was great to have a mate to go with, and there's no better mate than your elder brother so me and Paddy used to go to the to the vortex it become the Roxy had gone slightly out of fashion. So by the time... The Voxy wasn't open that long, really, was it? It was a very, very short period of
0: time. Did, did the members ever play there?
1: The members did play at the before Voxy. Before you were in the band? Before yeah. I was in the band, yeah. 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 And so with, they played with Ed Banger and the Nosebleeds, which is a sort of offshoot of... Uh, Slaughter and the Dogs Yeah, yeah. Mor- Was
0: Morrissey Which band was Morrissey with Was he with Slaughter He was in the Egg Banger and the He was in Egg Banger Yeah, yeah right yeah. Very very briefly Yeah that's yeah, right Yeah, yeah. yeah that's yeah.
1: right So um, so yeah So the scene moved on Quite quickly From the The Roxy To the Vortex And uh, It was there That I Went with my brother And made friends With people I still know today And it was the centre of Punk At the time You could get See three bands For a quid On Monday night would be the Stranglers, X-Ray Specs, the Lurkers, you would see all sorts of things. And I didn't know at the time that within six months I would be there on the st- up there on the stage and uh, you know, and it would start defining me because I wasn't really that musically active. It was Nick Tesco that really said, right, oh know you've got to join my band and go and buy yourself a new guitar and we've got to get this thing sorted out. So it was a very exciting time. I thought I was just going to settle down and... With a comfortable life in a bank
0: so you, you think if, if your brother hadn't been kicked out when he had, then maybe you might not have yeah you know, it just that thing in the scene. How did it get back to to uh, to Nick when he asked you? had he heard about you or I a- had
1: a reputation of as a guitarist and um, singer uh, around Camberley, and that's he had heard about me and uh, but that was from back when you were a lad before you'd probably yeah, but I lived in London and i was it was known that I'd gone to punk clubs and Blessing. The other boys in the band had long hair, and he couldn't really have that, you know. So that he wanted some punk credentials. I was the punk credentials, I guess.
0: And you had a place in town, and they. Were I all had a, still back all, out. They all out lived here. in the suburbs yeah. and yeah, I, yeah.
1: I, I was in town. I was very sophisticated, and so, uh, <laughs> so they, uh, so he joined. He asked me to join the band, and uh, I lived in this bedsit in, uh, in Kilburn, and uh, I, I suddenly got inspired, and I wrote. In that, I wrote the three songs that Chelsea Sound and the suburb uh, and uh, solitary confinement in that, which were three songs about a suburban boy going to London. So yeah, yeah. it was the kind of three songs that define my contribution to the first album because there were some other really great songs on there. I don't want to take anything away from what Nick and uh, Gary wrote because they wrote some great songs and. Uh, I was a kind of bit of an interloper. I, 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 I sort of. But it was a a sound that we would become known as, and uh, yes, we still play them every every week. So there must be something good about them. The it must have been a very
0: exciting time. All of the uh, the people who were knocking around, and all the people that um, you were you're mixing shoulders with. One of the people that you mention in uh, in the book. And I had to look up to see how old he was. But you're talking about when the kids started coming in, and different people were following different bands. Is Stuart Pierce, the footballer, um, he was part of it? Was called the Fulham Crew. The that's guy. that's which, right. Which yeah. bands were they? Was, was he watching? He well, watching. The,
1: the, the Fulham Crew were, were mainly a little band of guys that used to follow um, the Lurkers around. Yeah, yeah. And so he was a big punk rock fan. He was a Shepherd's Bush punk rock fan and uh so the fulham shepherd's bush was kind of a real punk rock center because that's where the sex pistols are from and but he must have been so young then he must have been about 14 15 yeah, when he was exactly. coming yeah, in yeah. they all were he used to go out in his pajamas there was and there was a lot of the fulham crew were about 14 or 15 and people would let them in the pubs in those days when well, you they say didn't, nobody to,
0: really checked when well, you say he used to go in his pajamas
1: was it was it a look yeah, there was a part of the punk rock look look, anything daft and stupid you could go yeah. out and do it. Don't forget, people were customising their clothes, adding bits and pieces on. They were sticking pins, and they didn't have they didn't have punk clothes, so they just wanted to look as daft as possible. Their mums wouldn't let them shave their heads in the early stages of punk rock, 77, 78. There was no uniform, no leather jacket, no mohawk, no nothing like that. It was just cut your hair with a pair of scissors and look as daft as possible and as threatening and weird as possible and anything second hand, anything weird you'd have your flared trousers and they would pin them with a if you couldn't get your sister to take them in or whatever, you would pin put a pin to make your trousers drain pipes. Everything yeah, yeah. was everything was sort of um, you know it was homemade it was brilliant,
0: but you were juggling it at first, weren't you because you were still working in the uh, the bank, you were still working in the city, you still got a good job working in the city, like know, the song know, says, yeah, but you was st- at night you were gigging and getting involved and doing all that sort of thing um Ian jury met you once and um said you you you, you look looked really
1: good yeah, he we, he met us in a pub in Tooley street and he was rehearsing next door and he said uh, Oh, I love the look, and we were me and Nick were really embarrassed because Nick was selling insurance at the time, so we had both had our work clothes <laughs> on, you know. But Ian thought this was a kind of sharp look. I guess it kind of was in a way, but we were yeah, we were bank clerks and insurance salesmen and all sorts of things, you know. We were we were just, uh, but it came in handy because a lot of the other punk rockers. Uh, were on the dole and lived in squats so they couldn't didn't have the price of a pint you know on them we had uh, we had a bit of money to splash out and enough money to put some gas in a car and drive to a gig so that was all really important to have a bit of money Uh, there was lots of bands that were just on the dole in punk bands that was a bit tough you know but we 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 had a bit more cash than them
0: so tell us about um tell us about the streets which was the compilation that you played on Beggar's Banquet the first one of the first punk pop um, compilations well how did it come about that you got invited to to get on there well
1: streets is some people say it is the first uk studio punk compilation and it's martin mills from beggar's banquet's first long playing record he's a um, quite important man in the record scene they noticed there was a punk thing happening, and so uh, Steve Lillywhite and the manager of Eddie, Eddie and the Hot Rods, Ed Hollis, were asked to put together a punk compilation. And uh, so, obviously, Steve said, "Well, we'll get my brother's band in," and uh, and they they got they booked a studio, and they would put they would record three or four bands in a day. So you just get in, set up, and record. And I plugged my guitar into the amp and what I thought was on, and put the headphones on. I'd never been in the studio before, and they recorded it. And they said, "Yeah, it sounds great," but they were all laughing at me, and they didn't. I didn't realise that my amp wasn't turned on. So, whilst I'm on the backing vocals on the street, on Fear <laughs> you do not play playing yeah. guitar. Not playing guitar. At the time, I was there. I think. For my looks rather than my guitar playing. So um,
0: like the Richie Manic stories, isn't it?
1: Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, but it, it, we, we we recorded it. and It was quite extraordinary because out of the group of people that were on the record, there would be the Lurkers who would be on top of the pops. There was a band called the Doll who, within six months, would be on top of the pops. And then on the record is also a song called Talk Talk by a band called the Reaction. The Reaction became Talk Talk. And the song they recorded on that session would become a huge hit for them four or five years later as Talk Talk. So mm. it was quite seminal and uh, there were the nosebleeds were on there from Manchester. So it was quite a, an important record. And there's a lot of people on the scene that say, oh yeah, it's still one of the best punk rock records. Nicky and... Uh, Gary wrote a fantastic song called Fear on the Streets, which was about a political kind of thing about the National Front, actually, at the time. And um, it was just a great record. And uh, it was our first, very first record. So we're very proud of it. And uh, we, that's how we got on it, because Adrian's brother, Steve, was making the record.
0: Yeah, yeah. OK. And off the back of that, um, you got Talking to Stiff. And uh, then Solitary Confinement was the next uh, track you put out.
1: That's right. We were very lucky. We got a call to say, Dave Robinson wants to speak to you. And so we called him up and we went up to Stiff Records. Nick and I went to Stiff Records and uh, Dave said, what can I do for you? And we said, Nick said, I want to be on the cover of a teenage magazine. And Dave looked at the step and he said, well, I can do that by paying some money. Is there anything else we can do? And I said, please sir, we'd like to make a record. (laughs) And at the time, of course, it was the record label to be on. It was Reckless Eric, Ian Jury, Elvis Costello. They were, you know, it was a really influential record label. And he said, yeah, I can make a record for you. And and, uh, they were very quick. The big record labels would take three, four months. Stiff would have a record out in two or three weeks.
0: Bang, yeah, there you go. And it
1: it got, they put it out and it got record of the week in NMAE. uh, there was a guy called Tony Parsons that was a journalist there since become a writer. And he he wrote rather grandly, he was a bit of a punk rocker at the time, that it was the best record Stiff had ever put out, which I think was a bit of an exaggeration. But we had Record Week and NME and, you know, at the time that meant a lot, you know, it was... I guess like being on an important blog now. I don't know. Probably may- maybe being on, like being on your show or something like that.
0: <laughs> being on my podcast. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I know you take the mickey. <laughs> but uh, that was at uh, that moment with stiff getting in with stiff. Like you say, they did have that reputation of really um, caring about the music and doing something different. They weren't just another uh, record label, were they? They were getting in there and putting stuff out.
1: Well, like Beggar's Banquet at the time, they were called an independent label, so they were independent and of the big record labels, and they did things very differently. They had actually quite very strange and weird combinations of people. They had people from the pub rock scene. They had all sorts of strange records on the on the label. It wasn't just punk rock, although they did have the first punk record, "Neat Neat Neat," and the first punk hit, "The Damned." They had the Damned and the Adverts. And, they were really special, and they were independent. Years later, independent became to be known as something else, and all the big record companies would have independent labels to pretend, yeah, pretend, pretend that to you're be doing independent. Yeah. But yeah. the reals—they were really an independent label, and they were run by a fantastic Irishman called uh, Dave Robinson and Jake Riviera. But Dave was just an amazing person. He was—he was like a. Jimi Hendrix is roadie. He was Graham Parker's manager. He went on to manage Island Records. He's still around. He's a fantastic person, very charismatic and exciting person. It's worth looking him up. He's just brilliant.
0: And off the back of that, you had the opportunity to uh, go and sign for Virgin. I've heard, I've seen some stuff online with Nicky talking about how there was a little bit of when you're signing the the record deal to get you the thing you really want so you can put the album out there and uh, and do all that and take it to the next level. There's a, is this selling
1: out the punk? Was there any of that or? Well, we all want, everybody wanted a record deal. We, we felt we were selling out a little bit, but they wanted to, you know, you, you, it's like, where do I sign? Do you want to look at the contract now? Where do I sign? Everybody wanted to do it. It was, uh, it was the dream, you know, to live the dream to just to be a professional musician we thought that you needed a record company to validate what you were doing or we thought that you know it wasn't proper if it unless it was on a piece of plastic with a piece of cardboard in the middle looking back I, it was great to have the push and they really gave us a push for the record and it was important but uh I don't think that uh, nowadays I don't think having a record label makes your art any more important, it, but it's handy to have somebody that takes it to the BBC. I, it all happened in the way that they it should have. They they got they got put the record out. It was the perfect record. They paid a man to take it to the BBC as you had to in those days, and we got on the radio and it became a hit. So you're
0: on top of the pops and the world's your oyster
1: that's what everybody would dreamt about you yeah, you yeah. always wanted to be on top of the pops as well they you thought that was job done you know but that was just the beginning really or uh it's uh we went to Berlin and I, we gave up our day jobs and uh Gary didn't come Nigel came and Berlin that was, was the
0: point when Gary sort of was like "I'm." Um, no need-
1: he yeah he he went on to become a an airline pilot yeah and uh we we went on to become very briefly rock stars
0: before you got in that van and drove all the way uh, over uh, to uh, to berlin
1: it was just amazing you know suddenly we one minute you're working in a bank and the next minute you're playing in a club full of weirdos and hells angels in in uh, in berlin it was just a really interesting and strange experience and also a baptism of fire because it was one of those things in your life, your life will never, ever, ever be the same again.
0: That was it. It was a rock and roll.
1: <laughs> yeah, we were. You were kind of condemned, you know. That was like, you weren't. For me, it was. You know, it was the end, beginning of, beginning of a different lifestyle to one that I had planned out for myself.
0: But you drove all the way over there, or you were driven all the way yeah, I mean, over there.
1: Yeah, the guy—they they sent a guy in a van to pick us up, and they drove us out there. And you'd have to go through communist the corridor, and it was just amazing. And it was the time Bowie and Iggy and everybody were out there. It was like the groovy place, and it was kind of like punk. The Berliners took punk rock very seriously, and it was there's something about Berlin that's very punk rock. It's kind of very gothic, very. G e o t h e Goethe is very German in its totalitarian negativity. So they saw it not as just like some Herberts from the suburbs. They saw it as a sort of real art movement. Yeah, yeah. and the guy that ran the uh, nightclub that we played at the S O thirty six was a famous artist, and so they saw it as an expression of art. And they took it to at at a real Germanic conclusion that wasn't really. In our minds, so they saw it as something really quite, quite amazing. And in a funny way, they they built on it, and also the graphics and the ideas of it became expanded in Germany. It became a really important punk center, and it is kind of now. Uh, it's it also in England, it was seen as a kind of fad, you know, that would pass. But in Germany, it was kind of something. A next stage of of music that they, or not just music of lifestyle, of art, of design, and everything, and it became something they, a concrete base that they could build something much bigger on. So you had
0: quite a wild time while you were out there. And uh, Nicky wasn't in the van when you came back, or
1: yeah, well, he went completely bananas. You know, and he was he just disappeared. When we went, when, when we were supposed to come back, he'd gone. He was at partying with people. So the uh, Buzz and Robin's first job as a manager was to try and send, a, send him a plane ticket to come back from Berlin. He didn't want to come back. He was out there. I mean, he was, you know, he was living the life, living the dream, you know, he was kind of out of control. He knew that we couldn't do anything without him. So he could just misbehave as much as he wanted, really. <laughs> <laughs>
0: the front man's luxury. Yeah, that's yeah. right. So yeah. The Jim Morrison. That yeah, could do so it was. A was it was doing.
1: Yeah, you yeah, was the Jim Morrison of the members. Yeah, definitely.
0: So once you got back to the UK, you've got the deal. You're recording the first album. You're on top of the pops. Everything's everything's hunky Well, what
1: they did is uh, we'd had recorded the album and, uh, and uh, we'd recorded the single first, but the single wasn't going to come out till the 23rd of January 1978. But we were signed to Virgin and they were flexing their muscles. So Devo were on tour. So they said, we'll put them on tour with Devo. We got to play the Hammersmith Odeon and Manchester, somewhere in Manchester, Birmingham, Odeon. We got to play Newcastle. We got to play all these big concerts playing with Devo, which was brilliant. So one minute we're in pubs and the next minute you're playing in Hammersmith Odeon, you know. So it was definitely pinch me, I'm dreaming. And it was all brilliant, you know, and... uh, we lived a very dissolute you know we you know we thought well we're rock stars now we have to get drunk every night and all that sort of thing and we did
0: yeah and d- during that period chris went a little bit off the rails and
1: you uh, after the after, after the after the record was a hit uh chris had given up his job he'd been an aircraft uh, maintenance engineer since he was about 16 so he was about suddenly he didn't have anything you know and we were all taking drunk uh taking drinking a lot taking drugs doing whatever we wanted to and he had a like a nervous breakdown and uh, it it was uh, probably on the first or second tour so february march we had to have him committed uh, to uh and my brother came paddy came and played guitar bass guitar for us well Uh, Chris was in hospital were you
0: keeping an eye out for him though keeping his his
1: place in the band yeah we were yeah we we did well literally he wasn't well so Paddy came on tour with us to to keep an eye on him but it soon became obvious that he needed some proper medical care you know Um, it's not unusual for people to go a bit crazy when they were musicians we had toured before Devo we'd done a few gigs with uh x-ray specs and polystyrene wasn't a well woman at all Mm. uh, but she was kept sort of medicated so that the band could play I mean mean, uh, that's what that's what happened yeah
0: I suppose in that nowadays people would maybe take a step back and say This isn't working for people, but in those days you were a commodity. No, no, and it's
1: worse now. I mean, look at what happened to Amy Winehouse. She shouldn't have been on stage. She shouldn't have been pimped out like she was. She should have been having proper help. I think uh, also. The th- I think the thing
0: is as well. Often when you talk, this isn't uh, an unusual. That woman in the. Um, it's not an unusual story, is it? Because you hear uh, the specials, loads of people. You get that fame, you get that adulation, but the record company wants you to do these dates, 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 and it burned. A, it burned a lot of people out, didn't it? But um, I think when you get to a stage that you know, once you're a little bit older, you can take control a little bit more
1: and say, well, actually, you yeah, know, I mean, there's some really amazing, there's some really terrible examples of what happened, you know, to people, you know, the people that had drug problems, Sid Vicious, you know, there was uh, Shane McGowan and the Pogues, you know, they they were quite happy for him to be drunk the whole time yeah. and, and everything.
0: As and long as you're able to perform, just, then it becomes a yeah, problem. Yeah, yeah,
1: and then and but a lot of these people in like some stages were just only just about to perform. And the audience didn't seem to mind. They said, oh, it's great. You know, we saw them. He could hardly stand up and everything yeah. like that. And so as long as there was people making money out of it, they didn't really give a fuck about the person on the stage because as long as there's an agent picking up 15% and a manager picking 20%, I don't really care. So just that's the way the world works. You know, once, once they want you, they want you. And if you're hot, they, they can make you, you have to work.
0: Yeah, but it's also a thing about closing ranks, isn't it? I mean, like, with, with The Clash, when Topper wasn't well, there was that sort of thing about, well, at the end, he couldn't do it because he was in such a state, but the band tried to protect him. I think, were you trying to do the same thing with Chris? Well,
1: you do. You try and protect him uh, until he can't actually do his job, you know, and then you say, well, we had to, he had to get specialist help. We put him in the priory, which cost a lot of money at the time, but uh, he got better and he came back, you know, and... Um, but, it's, you know, it's, it's you become very, very self-interested if you think that the, you know, the, the band is the most important thing, you know, and I don't know, it's just, it was a crazy time and there's lots of drink and drugs, you know, and uh, that's what the music business was like. I don't know if it's as many, as much drink and drugs now, but...
0: Uh, it's different now, though there's the bands that are there i don't you know you and i don't know but the sort of music there there's nothing like the punk scene now there's, no. n- there's nothing where there's you know there's less and less you go for a talent talent show do you maybe rather than uh, yeah
1: yeah you, no no mm. it's not it's not like that um i mean don't forget the the punk scene was very short-lived actually originally in england it only lasted about 18 months and yeah we went on tour in the summer of 1979 and we went around the world. We went round the world in less than eighty days. We toured America, Australia, New Zealand, and we came back. And they said, "Oh, it's over now because it's Scar now." And so we were told, you know, and we were more or less, we were more or less put on the scrap heap by the end of nineteen eighty. They said we don't really,
0: even though you had that reggae sound to your band, it was no, just like no, this no, is no, yesterday's... It has to be yeah. fast,
1: and it has to be Scar and it has to be the Body Snatchers and Madness and Specials. So it was very strange. That It was kind of dumped. Uh, But whereas in America, punk rock went underground and it emerged 10 years fully fledged like a butterfly as grunge. Mm. And the people that had been playing on the punk scene had sort of... And there was a proper alternative scene. In England, it wasn't really an alternative scene. It was like the pop scene. You were playing the top rank and all those kind of places. Now there's much bigger alternative scene in punk rock than there was then. Yeah, yeah. And there's lots of people we're out playing shows at the weekend, you know, to lots of people, you know, it's, it's, there wasn't an alternative scene. It was, you were, it was, you were playing in the same venues as, uh, as the big rock acts or as, as the big pop acts, you know, so it was, it was very short lived. When you were on that tour, you, you off,
0: you went and you went to the States. Yeah. Um, and, uh, various gigs you played there, um, you booked into the Tropicana Motel and uh, there's this sort of story in the book about you're around a kidney shaped pool and uh, there's, uh, there's members of the Ramones and Blondie there. And all of a sudden you feel like you're a million miles away from, from London and from Camberley and you're living a lifestyle as a rock star. What
1: was that? That was incredible, you know. Uh, I mean, funny enough, the, 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 the punk scene in, in America was quite small. There was only a few people that were really into it in New York, and there was a DJ in, in LA called Rodney Bingenheimer, he was a very famous DJ. But there was it was a small scene in LA. It was more in San Francisco and New York, so it wasn't a big scene, you know. So we, we were quite huge in England, and uh, we did big shows in uh, in New York, and then we got to LA, and they said, "Oh, you're playing in this Chinese restaurant." And We were playing in a Chinese restaurant. It's like oh, what this. What's this? So it hadn't really taken off there. America was still about the Eagles and the big, big, big rock band. So, uh, but we got there and, and the Ramones and Blondie didn't really mean anything outside New York. Yeah. And they didn't for a long time. So, I mean, the Ramones were playing small gigs in New York and they came to London. And suddenly they're playing the Roundhouse. That was a big deal for them. So... It was, but it was amazing to be out there, you know, and suddenly meeting all these people that you, you read about in the newspapers, and you were part of the scene, and it was just incredible, really. And you know, it's you, it was, you know, what you dream of. You would, you wouldn't even dream. I wouldn't have even thought that I would be in LA doing a gig, you know, two years beforehand. I just thought I would be working in a bank. So it was a great, great thing, and I loved the travelling and. Uh, I liked doing the shows and I met a lot of people. And uh, Also, we were very bad boys, you know, just partying the whole time and all that sort of thing. We thought that was brilliant, you know. I don't really think it's that brilliant now, but...
0: Well, the you're time, young once, aren't you?
1: You're only <laughs> young once, yeah. yeah. <laughs>
0: when you flew, you left New York and went straight to... Was it New Zealand or Australia?
1: No, it was, when we went to LA, we went to uh, New Zealand. We were the first punk new wave band to play in new zealand so we there was a huge deal for us they were it was like the beatles coming to new zealand uh, they made a huge fuss of us and it was a great show and then we went to australia and we spent three incredibly three weeks in australia it's a long time to be in a sit in a in attack country with only 12 million people in it but they were really ready for it and they loved it and so we had a great time and early versions of the uh in excess played with us and the birthday party and all sorts of that's things nick
0: cave's fun. band isn't it yeah mm.
1: so it was all it was kind of really great and uh you know the other thing is that there was no way i would have get to go to those countries if i wasn't in a band it was like an amazing thing it was like like i was in the navy or something like that you know and we so we went all around the world i mean our managers were were young and they weren't that experienced but they had an idea that we should go to as many pages as possible and not stay in england a lot of our contemporaries never really left england or never really even sort of darkened the door of america but we were on the road a lot and we spent a lot of time even later on in our careers we spent a lot of time in america and uh yeah i love it i love traveling
0: Let's talk about the risk that the band took when you, after the success of Sound of the Suburbs, you decided to release Offshore Banking Business as your second single. It seemed like a bit of an unusual choice with it being a very different kind of record.
1: Well, it was a huge choice. I mean, the thing is, I, I, I was sitting in my bank one day and um, it came to my attention there was this, these little fiddles that people could do without to avoid paying UK tax. And I suddenly noticed it was being done on an industrial scale by large companies. And I just thought, this is wrong. I mean, so I sat down at my desk and I wrote these words out. And I and I wrote, phoned up Nicky Tesco. He was working. And I said, look, I've written this song. And he said, it's brilliant. And it was brilliant like that. I mean, he was so supportive. So so I wrote, wrote, I did the, wrote the chords out and and we knocked it out. And then we had this reggae song about banking irregularities or tax
0: what did the guys at Virgin think about that or was it like this is what we want to put out yeah it was,
1: was and we were flavour of the month but they they wanted to put Solitary Confinement out but we said oh we've already done that we should have been but it was a magical thing happened is that uh, Steve Lillywhite said oh it's a reggae song we should record it at Island Studios Island was the headquarters for all reggae in England it was run by Chris Blackwell. that's where Bob Marley recorded so off we went to Island Studios and in the corner of Island Studios there was these musicians that hung around there, famous reggae musicians, including Rico Rodriguez. And he s- Steve said, oh, we should get Rico in, you know.
0: It was just like Steve saying, this is before he was doing the stuff with the specials.
1: Yeah, 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 before hmm. that. Yeah, so Rico wasn't really busy. He, uh, I think he'd played on some uh, Bob Marley records and he, he'd done, made a great solo album on uh, and he was an old ska player so so we i we got the song up and we said here's the song and chris played a bit of piano and nigel played a bit of organ played a great guitar solo and it was decided that chris and i would sing the lead vocal as in unison and nick would do this rapping part and uh, so that's how it worked out and it was just uh, we recorded it and it just sounded great the record sounded great and do you remember making the
0: video i've had a look at the video online and it's
1: very strange
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, should, anybody put, listening to this should they, go and just put it into uh, your favorite search put, engine they, they
1: maybe put dark makeup on i'm not quite sure but it's very odd right but it's a great video and um, and it's a great story because not many people get the opportunity on their second record big record to say something about the world that you think is wrong with it. And you seem like...
0: I think that it captures what the members was about because although you had a serious message there, in that video and in that song, Nicky's playing this banker character, throwing this... And you look like... You, you Chris and Nigel, look like you're just having a, you're having a ball. Yeah.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's brilliant. You know, we're, we're living the dream, you know. But it's a great video. It's a fantastic song. And uh, we've got this huge legendary horn player playing with us and and, the, and and obviously it's nothing like Sound of the Suburbs but Sound of the Suburbs you can't underestimate how long it was in the charts. It was in the charts for six, seven weeks. It was there a long time. It yeah. hung around a long time. People loved the record. It sold in those few weeks it sold a quarter of a million copies, you know. Huge selling record. So whatever we did, we could have, we could, you know, we could have sneezed and they would have put it on the radio. So and
0: how was did was Rico? Because he's obviously, um, you know, a few years older than the rest of the band. He's been around for a bit. How was he?
1: Well, he was a lovely man, you know. Yeah. And we we got to do uh, Top of the Pops, and we, I sat in the basement of uh, the broadcasting house with him, and he told me all these stories about working. It's on Warrigal Hill with all these Rastafarians and these he sang me these Rasta hymns, which are a bit like Protestant hymns. Yeah. And he was just a lovely guy, and I sat there, and him and Dick used to smoke weed and all that sort of thing. And uh,
0: Dick was playing um, with him. Flugelhorn, yeah. Dick was Flugelhorn, yeah. yeah.
1: And and we went around the world, and uh, when we came back, they were with the Specials. Yeah. yeah. And they were with the Specials for a long time. And And he
0: uh, he put some stuff out in his own name, didn't he, on the two-tone label as well, Rico?
1: That's right, yeah. yeah. And uh, he was... uh, it was just great, you know. And uh, he did some gigs with the members, and uh, he and played on our second album as well. And uh, they were just great. And it, it was, but it was a huge jump from being a punk band to suddenly making this politically motivated uh, reggae record. But it was in my plan. It was like I'm going to change the world, and I'm going to become, you know. And I, I'm not here just to sing about love. I wanted yeah, to yeah. write songs that would have resonate and be important. And so when we went to America, we got interviewed by the institutional investor in the Wall Street Journal because there was resonance in what we did. And uh, also it meant that I could never, ever, ever, ever Working get a banking. job. In- <laughs> <laughs> I had kind of like communist written on my well, didn't,
0: CV. didn't you tell your old boss that you could, you know, you yeah. had that sort of quadrophenia moment where you told him to, you know, you could take your job. And, yeah, that's you know. right.
1: Yeah, 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 I said to him, when, we, when, we, when I handed a notice and I said, look, I just made a record and I've, I've sold 1,500 copies, you know. So when you go in that room there, you shout, six people jump up. And I said, I've just done this record. And he said, you can take your bloody job. <laughs> and uh, well, there were times later on in life that I'd wished I hadn't given up the security of being a musician and but the thing is about being a musician is about taking risks people that are successful in music get there by taking risks and uh, even now the, the risk that you take every time you get in a van it's so, right we're going to Sunderland lads Do, uh, are we going to get paid well I don't know I mean the guy said he's pay us you know have you worked for him before no so you take, every day is a risk but you don't but people that want to... If you don't
0: have a go, you'll never know. Yeah, you, mm. people
1: that people that are successful... as Nick was a great risk-taker. Everything he did was a risk. We took risks, you know, uh, every day, and uh, we still do now. It's, it's just um, the people that want an easy life get a regular job and they play in a pub around the corner for the weekend. But if you want adventure and you want to resonate outside your hometown... You've got to take risks. Yeah. When you got back from that
0: tour, you were talking about how, you know, Two Tone had taken its, uh, the place of punk and it seemed like things had moved on. Um, and it was around about that time that Virgin called you in and said, thanks, but no thanks. Well, well, that you must mean, have been a horrible feeling.
1: Yeah, well, what happened is we, we went in and said we, we wanted to uh, sack our manager. And they said, well, we were thinking of dropping you. But but what they did, which is even worse, they said, we've got this great new record. you want to hear it? So they played us In the Air Tonight by Phil Collins and saying, this is our new artist. This is our new direction. So they're already dumping punk and going for Phil Collins in the air tonight. And I still hate that record. I was listening to it and I thought, what's this about then? I can feel it coming in the end tonight. I didn't make any sense tonight. And then there was this big drum roll. And I thought, that's fucking. That's rubbish, right? So they said, you know, we're not going to renew your contract. We're not going to ask you to do again. So this was probably March 1980. We'd only been on the label about... But what happened, we were lucky that, that there was quite a lot of money still coming in from the record because the publishing still paid money and that was enough to keep the lads on wages until the next thing came along, you know. Because
0: you couldn't have given up then, but you decided you wanted to go and make that third album.
1: Yeah, and we were lucky. We bumped into these people that were really professional managers and really committed, and they took us on and without a record deal, and eventually they secured us a deal with Martin Russian, and we made the third members' album. And we started all over again, but mainly in America. We were, yeah. because, Was
0: the album released in America before the UK? Yeah yeah okay so you're back out there promoting that again and again talking about your your videos i mean the um offshore banking business with the sort of plastic seagull yeah, and everything yeah, yeah. you'd moved up a little notch by the time you were making the videos for the third album because now we're talking mtv
1: it's one of the guys that was uh, in the band you know one of our support bands was uh co- called dave allen and he uh, he got a job working for this record producer called Martin Russian. Now Martin Russian made one single with the members that never came out. And he made a lot of Stranglers records, Generation X and Buzzcocks records. He was a good producer. But what happened in uh, about 1982 is he was given the Human League as a project. And the Human League at the time were just Phil Oakey and these two girls and, and the guitarist out of the hmm. and they, they'd they split in half and anyway so basically Martin reinvented the Human League as this amazing synth group and had this number one hit all over, all over the world and Clive Davis the guy that signed Bob Dylan to CBS said to him you can have your own label you can sign whoever you want and he said, "I'd like to sign the members and Peter Shelley, from the Buzzcocks? yeah, hmm. as a solo artist, and the members." And so suddenly we were back. And he had the—he was the man with the golden touch. So we, the, the money came in, and we signed it to, to Martin. And he said, "Oh, you've got to make an album, but you have to make it exactly the same way as I made Dare." So we had to make it an electronic record, right? Yeah, and building. And a record the, set, the way you make a record now is you build it like a Lego house, brick at a beat at a time, and that's how we did, made that record. And uh, it, the the videos were MTV had just started off, and it was a huge, just a completely different world. You could suddenly reach all these different people by being being on MTV, and we had a they they were very cleverly. When we made a video for Working Girl, it had like Big Ben in it and loads of pretty girls, and
0: it you're was, selling the, the sort of Englishness to the American market. That's yeah? right, yeah. 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 And
1: uh, that record was a huge MTV hit, and it was played eight times a day for three or four months. So it was burned into the American psyche. So even though we didn't have the money from a big record so we were treated like pop stars in America, and everybody. Half of America had MTV and other half didn't. So you could be on one side of the street and not know who we were, but on the other side of the street people knew it would stop you in the street and they knew you from the videos.
0: And you had some uh, you had some models hired in for, for that video. It was a little bit
1: was a bit awkward, they were it was Well something yeah, somebody just booked all these models in from a model agency. It wouldn't happen today, would it? Yeah. <laughs> well, I think they do that now. I mean well, maybe, yeah, yeah. Yeah, you do. You, if you want to make a pop video and you've got money to spend you just go they get they get the book and they say, well that one's pretty. We will have that one, that one, that one, and that one. But Adrian, Adrian wanted his, uh, his his wife in. Yeah, he had than his wife. He had some wife. Right. Model, yeah, some standing pretty model. Yeah, we all had pretend girlfriends. Adrian had his uh, his own wife, and we made a great video. And they pushed us in the swimming pool at the end, and that became what the members are known for in America. And then the producer Martin Russian was a complete genius, and he loved the Beach Boys and ABBA. And he led all these backing vocals on it. It became this huge chorus, you know. And he sang loads of the backing vocals himself. He in fact, he sang a lot of the backing vocals in the Buzzcocks records. Right, okay. And I was talking hmm. to Pete before he'd passed and we had a chat about it, this that he added that kind of a huge hook. Often the Buzzcocks would record and That Stigler and that wanted to go to the pub and everything, so Martin would do the backing vocals. He'd
0: stand behind and do that, yeah. So,
1: Ever Fallen in Love and all that sort of thing. The big backing vocal part is Martin Russian. And they're singing on. uh, And the huge, a large part of the backing vocals on Working Girl of Martin Russian as well.
0: And the other hit on that album was was radio.
1: Big hit in Australia. Hmm. Big hit in radio in Australia. Also, it was a hit about six years ago for a pair of DJs called Duck Sauce was it? Yeah Duck Sauce it was uh, Armin Van Helden and A-Track were known as Duck Sauce and they approached us and said we would like to sample it and what they didn't they didn't sample it they just took the song and cut it up and moved the bits round and put a big bass drum going boom 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 on yeah, it yeah. and you could clearly Here's the members records they called, renamed it Radio Stereo and uh, it wasn't as big as a hit as uh, they had one called Barbara Streisand, and there was another one I can't remember. But but it was it 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 became a kind of dance floor thing. Even David Goethe was dropping it and everything like that. It was the sort of it was suddenly you're crossing the genres, yeah. <laughs> it was like a disco. David Goethe was dropping it and cutting it up, and that source cut it up, and it was. Uh, it was, a, it was a hit in, in in Australia, and, yeah, it's kind of a good record, but uh, punks hated it.
0: Yeah. yeah. Well, it's it's a million miles away from Sound of the Suburbs, isn't it? It's, uh, you, you've gone on a journey. You know. Yeah, but like... Everybody went on a journey. The Clash went on a journey. Yeah, the you Clash... Know, if, we, if you we, hung around long enough, you'd go on a journey.
1: We were doing the same journey as The Clash because we liked rap and we liked all sorts of things. And and also, you're learning your trade, you know, so you were doing all sorts of... We loved going, going to Genetic and working out... All synthesizers. I still work with synthesizers now, and uh, it's great. You know, it's all part of what you do. You know, you can't just be in that ghetto forever. You, you know, it's all, it's all part of what you do. You know,
0: talking about, talking about the clash and progression. Joe Strummer. I was uh, interested. You, you knew Joe, and you played with Joe, didn't you? With, with uh, the members, you played at the Rock Against Racism uh, gig um but you really got to know him sort of afterwards yeah. after after all the punk thing had, had happened he he then became a, a good friend yeah joe
1: was a lovely man he was a, he was a, a very charismatic person and he i got to know him at sort of eighty four eighty five. 85 And he was wandering around. He he was kind of burnt out. And uh, I got to go to have lunch with him and have chats with him. And I played at his birthday party. And we talked about the meaning of life together. And he was just the most charismatic and complex person. He was just a great guy. And of all the people in punk rock, possibly one of the most charismatic. And he had great messages. I mean, we loved the way... He wrote the songs, and he he put his message in the song. He was like the Woody Guthrie a punk, you know. He was yeah, just brilliant, you know. Yeah. And um,
0: I mean, really, uh, people talk about Clash or the Pistols, but the, the Pistols were there for so short a time, whereas the Clash did go on that journey, didn't they? And and they brought so much in um, that there was no other there was no other band from that era that really went into all the areas that they went and did it in, in, in such a, a profound and in, in such a, um, in, in a, in a way that, that connected
1: to so many people. Yeah. You know? Well, what the clash did, they did something that the, all the other bands did, they stayed together long enough. Hmm. Then they broke America. They went on tour with the who and they broke America and they broke it in a big, big way. Whereas the pistols are split up by them. Even groups like the jam never really resonated in America you know they 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 hit the big time they became huge but he stayed true to his roots Joe was just a really a very special man and he he they experimented with music they changed round. they he was just they really they took it a step further and they were inspiration you know they were a huge inspiration to us and it was good to play with them especially when we played the Rock Against Racism gig at the uh, Rainbow. They came to see us in America when we were touring in America. They were just great. And he was somebody that you won't see the like of again. I mean, he, he was this charismatic figure that his What he did far transcended music. Joe was this just political, socio-political figure that was... Just really interesting, but also equally at home in a really rubbish, sleazy pub, then at the Groucho Club in the West End. He was just, he was, he transcended things. He was brilliant.
0: I suppose both of you had sort of come out the other side of the rock and roll adventure when the two of you became, because you were living sort of around the corner from each other in West London. And, that's right. And that's when you started to sort of really we build both, that friendship.
1: Yeah, we were both casualties of the sort of rock and roll casualties because. If you have a period of three or four years of intense touring and you, it leaves you scarred, and also it leaves you slightly walking wounded, you're not really fit for normal society because you're used to this weird world. And then when they take that away from you, you're lost. So when you do a lot of touring and you suddenly are not on stage anymore, you're you're kind of like a lost sheep. And that's what he was like. And uh, he he said to me one day, I don't know, how, I was. I'd formed a folk group. And I said, JC, I don't know how you do it. You know, I can't do it anymore. I've lost. And uh, he was just great. He was just a really brilliant time. And that little time that I spent with him, I learned a lot of how to be, you know, how to behave towards your fans and uh, and how to be a, genuine. He was just a really genuine person. He was a great person. It was. A, it's, I think you have to read the story, really, to read the book, to read, to know about it.
0: He was good friends with Nicky's girlfriend, wasn't he? From way back when.
1: Well, yes. I mean, Nick. Nick. He went to boarding school with Nicky's uh, girlfriend. Nick had a girlfriend called Annie Day, who was uh, really important in the early development of the members because he. She was. She lent him her trousers. He didn't have much of a wardrobe. No, she was brilliant, and she went on to work in record companies, and but she had all this correspondence with Joe and. Uh, She mentored him. Was Joe a little bit sort of
0: protective towards her when Nicky was on the scene? Not really,
1: no, no. But I think that that she wanted to make him, Nicky, into a mini Joe. Mm. She saw that was the model, that was her idea. She wanted him to have that gravitas and that importance and that revolutionary zeal. There was, you know, there was a lot of... uh, there's a and and Nick Nick was passionate about politics and stuff like that and he would you know he 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 was very forthright about that you know that politics and uh, music were all part of the same thing and uh, yeah it was it was yeah he wanted to be a prophet he wanted and and he wanted him to be like Joe you know and he was in in his own way you know but. Yeah, she was his sort of. I think, I think Annie really encouraged him to be what he was. Only through letters, they just wrote loads of letters together, and he told him about his struggle. and Joe. There's a great film uh, called "The Future Is Unwritten," a Julian Temple film about Joe. It's worth looking at that, and you get an idea of what made Joe the person he is because he came up through this squatting, alternative lifestyle scene in west london which predated punk Mm. and he's the sort of missing link between the radical hippie movement and punk and so he's got a zeitgeist there which is kind of interesting but also very well read and also you know like a bit like uh like jim morrison you know he read all the right books and so he it wasn't just about if the kids are united, it was about yeah, for, yeah. For, yeah. It's just really, he he gave it a gravitas and a and a, and a cultural veneer, which was really important. You know? people slagged him off because said his dad was he went to public school and his dad was a diplomat. Yeah, yeah, But and there's a certain there is a thing, and there's still you see it online. Oh, yeah, he's a posh boy and punk belongs to the working classes. I personally believe that's all bollocks. Uh, I think you know it belongs to whoever's got the guts to do it. get on the stage and talk about it
0: Mm.
1: his 50th
0: you were, because that was just before he passed away wasn't it, you were there
1: yeah, they hired my my folk rock group to play at his 50th party and uh, it was down in a town called Warewell which is in uh, off the A303 that goes past um, Stonehenge yeah, and we went down and we played at him. His ex-wife, the mother of his children, was, had a house down there. It was nice. We played there. Yeah, he, he had. He loved parties. He loved campfires. He loved talking late into the night. He was just a really amazing person. I certainly went to his funeral. Funeral was a fantastic affair. A great uh, West London punk rock funeral. And, uh, yeah, it's, uh, I met up with all my old mates and we gave him a bloody good send-off.
0: Your 50th uh, was a bit of an event as well, because uh, you decided you were going to try and invite everybody that you you used to uh, play with in your various bands since the members as well. And uh, the boys all turned up for you. Um, was everybody there at your 50th? Or Nicky was definitely there, wasn't yeah, he? Nicky yeah, no, and what Chris?
1: Happened, yeah, no, what happened is that uh, it's actually in the same venue as we Joe Strummer's funeral. It's a, a place called uh, Paradise in Kensal Rise. And uh, I decided that I wanted to get everybody that I'd ever played with, you know, which included my folk rock group that I'd been playing with on and off for about eight, nine years, and I'd get them together, and then get the members together. And so the members lined up. Nigel was in America, so the members lined up as Adrian Lillywhite, white Chris Payne, Gary Baker, the original guitarist, and Nick Nicky uh, Tesco. And we played a very short set there. And had you practiced, or was no. it just? Yeah, no, just, no you, it but you've just birthday party. It's not, it's not a gig.
0: Yeah, it's your birthday.
1: Yeah, yeah, I lads,
0: can't. let's get the guitar from under the bed and let's play.
1: Yeah, that's exactly what it was. It was brilliant. And uh, so it was that set the the the, the band back on the uh, get back together again. That's fourteen years ago. I'm sixty four now.
0: And in that time, you've been together twice as long as the band was in the original format. Um, you've travelled all over the place, Uh, you've released new materials, and it's all happened again. So when that happened, when you uh, approached Nicky, I mean, I I, I think it's fair to say you're more, you're the driving force behind the band now. Nicky's done a little bit with you, but not a lot.
1: Yeah, I mean, Nicky had become a journalist, and and, and I felt he felt that, that his musical... Life is behind him because uh, we did that show and then we did another show. We, we we got off at a big show, reunion show and he decided he didn't want to do that. He, he didn't really plan to perform again. And I wanted to do the songs. Songs I'd saw that a lot of other bands were playing the songs and I thought, do you know what? The world deserves Sound of the Suburbs. It, it's too good a song to once the cat's out of the bag, you think, well, why haven't I been playing this? And I hadn't been playing it for 20 years, you know. And I thought, well, this is, you know, why. And I'm... it's
0: fresh to you as well, isn't yeah. well, it? It's is that what... thing with songs that sometimes d- define people, that, you know, they get tired of it, but you've had that long break. I so. had a
1: long break, and people people really wanted to hear Sound of the Suburbs. And so we did, we did a couple of song shows with Nicky, and then and the original lineup with, with Nigel and everybody. And then Nigel went off and joined the Vibrators, and I couldn't get him anymore. And I had a band called J C and the Disciples, which Nigel did play in, with uh, Nick Cash and Chris. And Chris Payne was on the edge of that. And so, so Nick Cash's drummer played with Nine 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 as well. No, no, no. Nick Cash is, it was christened Nicholas John Cash. The uh, the guy from Nine 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 is christened Keith Lucas, and he stole Nick Cash's name or borrowed it. He stole his name. Well, Nick went to audition for Nine 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 in yeah, nineteen seventy-seven, yeah. and they said, "What's your name?" And he said, "Nick Cash." And they said, "Oh, that's a brilliant name. Where did you make? Did you make that up?" And he goes, "No, mate, it's my name." And and something clicked in and Keith Lucas has said, "I'll have that." And so the next time Nick saw Nine 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 playing, he'd uh, although he didn't get the gig, they pinched his name. Yeah. <laughs> and he played a bit Ka- rum, we isn't played with Nick. We played with Nick Cash, and and uh, and we. I, so anyway, we got we we had this band called JC and the Disciples. Nick Cash called it JC and the Disciples. It wasn't my idea. And uh, one day we we were playing along, and then uh, and Chris came along. and He started playing guitar. We had another bass player. And then somebody said, Oh, we're doing this benefit for the guy from the Ruts. Do you want to play a big show at? Uh, shepherds bush empire and i said yeah we'd do it and i said but I tell you what put us down as members of the members and nick was playing chris was playing guitar and this other guy said like, well hold on can you swap and you go back on the bass and it's like oh hold on a second this sounds like the members you know so we started playing so i went to nick and i said can we i know like i said i can't get nigel Agent's not interested anymore he's got a business selling real estate in um cap verde islands i said uh is it all right if I take the band on the road? He said, "Well, I'd rather you didn't." I said, "Yeah, but people want to hear it." He said, "Okay, off, off you go." You know. And so I, uh, so we started. Well, he's played with you a couple of times. He has had it? it. No, no, we, he's done a couple of guest appearances. Then, then, then we, then we got uh, then. Uh, then Nick Hash got ill, and uh, he, uh, we were about to go on tour in Europe, and Nick phoned me up and said, "JC, I can't do it. I've got uh, this heart thing. I've got this uh, procedure. He had to have stents put in." What, what the fuck am I going to do? So I phoned my mate Dave up and he said, Well, Rat might do it. So I phoned up Rat Scabies. So I phoned up Rat Scabies and he said, Yeah, I'm broke. I'd like to do it. <laughs> so he became the drummer <laughs> of the members for three years.
0: But does that, as, as well as being the members touring again, you've also got the added bonus that you've got a member of the dam there that people oh, yeah, want to come and yeah, see? Yeah,
1: it was the legend of the damned, you know. Mm. And so that gave a whole new gravitas because Rat had been not seen for a long time, you know. He hadn't been playing or anything like that. How
0: long did you know him before he started playing with the band?
1: i met him on and off around the scene. And, you know, I knew him from, I saw him at, I just knew him. Around, it was a small scene. So he got in the van. I didn't really know him at all. You know, we went on tour together. And that's kind of like, you get to know somebody pretty quick. But he was, I mean, he's a fantastic drummer. So we had him for, and Nick got better, but Rat right, hang on to the drum seat. He was like, "Oh, when's the next kid, lads?" Yeah, yeah. So we, yeah, he became. I did about. But you've been all
0: over, haven't you? You've been all over Eastern Europe and all sorts of places. Yeah,
1: we went to, with Eastern Europe. We were a rat. We took him out to you know Zagreb and and Poland and. Uh, and one check, of the check. things about we, now, although
0: you, I mean you were driving the van now.
1: I'm. I was. Suddenly I'm the driver. Suddenly I'm the tour manager. Singer and a driver and everything, you know. Yeah, but you're not working for the record company anymore. No, you no, can stop no. off and you can, uh, yeah, you know, yeah, you can fun. you can combine that business with pleasure, it's, can't you? Yeah, it was great. We did we sightseeing. We learnt a lot about the history of the uh, Holy Grail and the Knights Templars. We went and stayed and went and watched, visited weird Nazi castles. Mm. We did loads of brilliant things, and uh, it was just it was me, Chris, and Rat in the van, and we learn. Some nights it was actually really brilliant. Uh, it was about like the cream because the three-piece band is very forgiving, and, cause, and Rat adored Ginger Baker, so we had this kind of thing. And people think that we punk bands sit and listen to um, UK subs in the car. We don't. It was nothing like that. You know, you listen to the Doors and really old rock stuff because Rat and Chris are a bit older than me. I was I'm the boy of the group, you know. So it was brilliant. It was a fantastic time, and it was also. If you made a documentary about it, it's actually much more fun and much deeper and much more interesting than going on top of the pops and getting drunk every night and ch- chasing girls around. We were suddenly these guys that were loose in a van going around Eastern Europe. It was suddenly the whole thing and
0: that's a lot of middle-aged men would actually dream about doing that for uh if you've got a forgiving uh forgiving wife and you can get yourself a, yeah, a three-week right. tour that sounds like that sounds like a holiday that yeah it's not a holiday because it's work <laughs> let's make Ooh, that clear but a lot of men would dream of that no, wouldn't they you
1: are any full any good-looking young boy can get record deal but to do it when you're in in your 50s you know is kind of special and uh you're also taking a risk because you're going millions of miles and hoping they will pay you, but so you're taking huge risk. And then, but then you're, yeah, it's it's you are definitely living the dream because you're sitting up on stage. You're sitting up on stage. You've got a hundred watt Marshall lamp and a guitar, rocking out, and it's just, it's I mean, it's nothing better than I think it's much better now than it was then, you know, because. Uh, there's that element of risk, and there's kind of really adventure. You know, it's just we don't. There's no safety net. There's no management. There's nobody around you. It's just up to you, and uh, yeah, it's fun. So, what's next for the members? Well, well, well I'm just I'm just booking t- booking another some studio time next week. I've started on the new album. I don't know what to call it yet. Um, mm i've written half of the songs in my head chris has got a couple of songs me and nick cash are going to go in some of it we do record all together like a band some of it we build like lego like we learned when we did the electronic music with martin russian so yeah there's a new album we're talking about going to europe again in autumn but it may be our very last european tour because after Brexit I don't know if the paperwork will make it too complicated and there's so sometimes it's good to say this will be the last European tour we might do individual festivals but I think autumn will see our last European tour the band will continue in the UK and uh, I have a book to finish and I'm still pushing this solo album I made last year so I am a busy guy
0: well, thank you very much, JC, for sharing the book. Not completely finished, yeah, but it was a really good read.
1: I'm glad you enjoyed it. I mean, does do you get an interesting idea of the difference between touring then and now, and all that sort of thing? It's
0: very interesting to see that thing because you read all these stories about the other bands that have been out on the road and about the high pressure of things like the Two Tone tour and and your trip round America. And actually, I think it's the fact that that the people who are still making the same music with the people they met 40 years ago are now doing it a little bit more on their own terms and getting a bit more fun out of it. And also there's an audience there that are are choosing you and coming to see it and reliving some of their youth and just enjoying the music for what it is and introducing the kids to it as well. Yeah. It's important the kids understand punk just as much as it is when we were younger that we'd listen to the Beatles and the Doors and all that, isn't it? That's because right. without that you don't have the you don't have the stepping stones, you you don't know where you
1: are. Well, the thing is to do to play music when you've got a record company and a, a management company behind you and lots of money coming in is one thing, but to do it without any of that and to make your own records and press them up and sell them online is a completely different thing and it's both part of what what I'm about and um, I love it you know and I love meeting people like yourselves and telling the story.
0: JC thank you for sharing a story with us on Fuzzcast. It's
1: been my pleasure to be on your show and I'm looking forward to hearing the finished podcast the Fuzzcast sounds fantastic.